discussion with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good afternoon and welcome to In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Farid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and free podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number 3104410555. Later in the show, I'll definitely be talking a bit about the attack that occurred Sunday night in Las Vegas. But just to keep with the consistency of the show, I wanted to do the book review from for the book of last week since I had a guest Monday, and then I'll get to that. And of course, you can call about that topic or anything else to our studio number. The book for this week, which I'll talk about next week, is The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness by Emily Esfahani Smith. And um, I'm about 70, 80 pages into the book, and it's really, really good. So I hope you'll check it out. It's a new book. So if you haven't heard of it, it's not because it's not really good. It's that it's it's new. I think it was released in 2017. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking about it next week on the show, The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. The, pow- the, the book for this past week was The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, The Five Love Language. Language is the secret to love that lasts. And this is a a classic book when it comes to love and relationships. And I had read about the five love languages and heard him speak before, but never actually read the book cover to cover. So I'm happy that I did that. And there's definitely a important message or messages that are in this book that I think everyone and every couple should know about. I did mention last week, I don't like the, the subtitle of The Secret to Love That Lasts. I don't think any one book or any, any one concept is the secret that's going to make love work or relationships work. It's going to be lots of different things, but I think this can be one of those things that I think is very important for people to know about and couples to know. So he talks about that we all have a love tank, essentially. And when that tank is empty, we don't feel very good and we're going to be sad and the relationship is not going to be good. But if we fill that love tank, if our love tank is full, then we're happier, we feel good. And if we're in a relationship and our partner is filling that love tank and giving us that feeling of being loved, it's going to create a healthy and happy relationship. Now, the thing is with this love tank or in feeling loved and this is where this concept of the love languages comes into play, is that we all don't feel loved in the same way. Or not all things will feel loving towards us, or if someone does it towards us, will we feel loved? It can be different from person to person, just like if you speak one language, someone might understand it, whereas if 
to someone else, it might sound like gibberish, whereas another language to you might be gibberish, and to them, they'll completely understand. So they, you have to speak, essentially, as he puts it, in your partner's love language in order for them to feel loved. Um, and this makes sense. I think it's important to keep this in mind, just for, not for our romantic partners, but to recognize that when we want to express love or kindness towards someone, we have to do it in a way that is meaningful to them. If I say I'm going to do this for you because I love you so much, but it's something you don't care about or doesn't feel good for you, that's not loving. If I say I bought you tickets for the ballet, but you hate the ballet, you're not going to be very happy with that gift. You might think, oh, well, a night is ruined or a night is going to be spent doing something boring or something I don't want to do. Or even it reflects that you don't really know me that you're doing that for me. So we have to recognize love is expressed in a way that the person feels loved. An analogy we can use is one of cooking. So if you are having food, you can't tell someone this is what's going to taste good to you or this is how you're going to like it or make you feel full. They have to decide for themselves what tastes good, what feels good for them to eat and decide that. We can't decide that for someone else. And to just assume that what I think is good has to be what you think is good is a problem and that's something that most of us do when it comes to expressing love. We think that if something feels loving towards me, if I do that towards my partner, they're going to feel very loved. But this is where the problem comes up, where people can have different love languages. So how, how I might speak my love towards my partner might not be the way that they are going to feel it or experience that love. So let's talk about the five different love languages that he expresses as exhaustive. Um, I don't know if there hasn't really been research on this to show that this is an exhaustive list that expresses all the ways love can be expressed or experienced and the love languages, but I think they are a good place definitely to start. Um, so there's words of affirmation, and that's things like compliments or saying things that are meaningful to the person. I'm proud of you. I appreciate you. Um, I think you're a wonderful this or a wonderful that. I love you. These are all words of affirmation and expressing love in a verbal way. And for some people, this can be very important. And for others, they might not feel very much because of that. And that's, again, where this idea of love languages comes into play. Um, and I should mention, as he puts it, everyone has a primary language, a primary love language. And some people or most people have a secondary love language as well. Um, sometimes one will be very prominent and it's really clear this is the one they want the most and for some people they'll have two that are very strong he does mention i think it's important to keep in mind just because you determine your partner's love language doesn't mean to forget the other ways of showing love those are still going to be important and helpful um, but there can be ways that we can recognize are more important or feel even more special for our partner that we want to keep in mind so there's words of affirmation um, there's also quality time and that means, as it sounds, just spending time together. But of course, in quality time, it means that we are really together. If you are just watching TV, but not talking to each other, or if you're both on your phones in the same room, just because you're actually in the same location, doesn't indicate necessarily quality time. So this is someone who would appreciate staring into each other's eyes and having a conversation or going for a walk together, um, holding hands or any other way that for them is uh, an experience of quality time, which for some people they might not like or might not want to do. But that's the, the love language of quality time. Um, there's also gift giving, which although it sounds like a material thing that's focused on gifts and things, 
it's not so much focused on the price of the gift, it's more the thought, and this is really what someone who speaks this love language is going to feel, that they want to recognize or feel that you were thinking of them. You went on a trip and you came back with something. It doesn't have to be something big, but that display, that act, shows that you were thinking of them and caring for them. Or if you remember that they said they wanted something and months later got it for their birthday, that's going to feel very special for this person, the person who gift-giving is their primary um, love language. There's also acts of service, and this is things like doing what we can consider chores or errands for the other person, things that they need to get taken care of, um, picking up their dry cleaning, doing chores around the house, uh, any which way you can do acts that helps the person. Let's say that you know that they're very stressed and you take care of a few things that they usually take care of. To someone whose love language is acts of service, this will feel like a very strong show and display of love and they'll really appreciate that. <clears throat> and lastly, we have physical touch which although it involves touch, it does not just mean sexual touch. That can definitely be a big part of it, but it can also be things like holding hands, um, sharing a hug, uh, even just a pat on the shoulder, or when you're sitting next to each other, being touching with each other, touching in that way. It's not just sexual touch, but touch in an appropriate way that feels good to that partner. That can be the way that they experience being loved. Now, as a partner... Your desire, hopefully, will always be to want to make your partner feel loved. Um, someone might say, well, it's not really natural for me. I don't like touching, let's say, or hugging, and that stuff makes me feel a certain way. Well, when you recognize that for your partner, this is the ultimate way for them to feel loved by you and to feel good and to feel that you actually care about them, we can make efforts towards becoming better at it. We're not saying completely change who you are or that you should do something that makes you feel super uncomfortable that you can't handle but we know that we can get better at those things. If you think you're not a very thoughtful person to give good gifts, put some effort into it. You can ask the person's friends. You can remind yourself, you know, open a folder or a note on your phone to keep track of things your partner says they like or are into throughout the year to try to give a good gift. Um, or if you know words of affirmation are something important, you can remember, I'm going to send an alarm for myself uh, every couple, every day, a few to remind myself to send a text or something sweet towards my partner. Cause I know that means a lot to them. And it might seem, well, does that make it mechanical or not genuine? Cause you're doing that? Not necessarily. Cause you're remembering that this is something important for your partner to feel loved. And you're going to make the effort to give them that feeling. Um, so to try to help determine what your partner's primary love language or your own is. First of all, there are tests. So there's one in the book, and you can also take them online um, that the author Gary Chapman has provided that you can take to determine your primary and secondary love languages and see how you score. Um, I took the test myself, and it was kind of interesting to do so. But there's other ways we can do that, or even just by observing our partner potentially try to determine what their love language is. <clears throat> Okay, the first one is to pay attention to um, what they complain about. So if they complain about, for example, you never say anything nice to me, or that would be words of affirmation. If, or if they say we never spend time together, that would be quality time. Um, or we never hug or hold hands, that would give you an idea that maybe physical touch is their primary love language. So you can pay attention to what they complain about. And then also related to that, um, what they request from you. So if they say, can you do these chores for me? 
that would tell you that acts of service might be their love language. So pay attention to what they're asking from you and then relate it to that what they might complain a lot about, which are similar and related, but both can reflect that. And the third one, and it's very important, is how they tend to express love to others. Because what we tend to do is we think this is what makes people feel loved because that's how we feel loved and that's what we tend to do for other people. So if you notice that your partner gives lots of compliments to people all the time, including you, or um, loves giving hugs to people to you know make them feel good or give them a good feeling, that gives you an indication that their love language might be physical touch. What we do unto others is likely what we would like to be done unto us. And this is where the problem can come into play, where you have a couple where, let's say, one spouse really likes words of affirmation and the other person likes acts of service. And the one who likes words of affirmation is constantly complimenting their partner, telling them how great they are, how much they love them, how much they appreciate them, on and on and on, regularly giving them and showering them with this type of love, of of uh, words of affirmation. And the other partner is doing all these chores and things for their partner because they think that's how they're going to feel loved. So they do run their errands for them. They do some things around the house that they surprise them with. And it might feel nice to that partner, but the problem is they won't necessarily feel loved. And here's where the mismatch can become a problem. And they say, you know, I don't really feel like you love me or I don't feel loved by you. And the partner is so surprised partner A says, I've said so many nice things to you. I keep showering you with compliments. Remember yesterday I said this, I wrote you that nice note to tell you how much I appreciate you. And the partner says, yeah, but that's not what makes me feel good. And vice versa. The other partner says, how do you not feel loved? I've been, you know, killing myself doing all these chores around the house, running errands when I've been busy to, to show you how much I love you. And to that partner, that doesn't necessarily feel like love. So this is where we have to recognize that you are not your partner and what feels good to, good to you is not necessarily what feels good to your partner. And we want to, as loving partners, if you care about your partner, take the effort to figure out how to make our partner feel loved. And um, the book is a, is a good one. I think it's important for couples to read that this book. But when I was reading it, also the couples he encounters in the book, um, there's one at the end where one partner is trying to make the relationship work and the other one isn't. But the foundation of these partners seems to be good. By that, I mean that the quality of caring for each other is still there. Although they might not be feeling very loved or showing a lot of love, they all have very good intentions. And I'd, of course, like to think we all have good intentions, but sometimes what happens in a relationship is that the foundation becomes so damaged that the partners tell themselves, I don't want to love my partner more or show them love. And this could be maybe when things have gotten too late. There can still be hope, but sometimes if you tell them this is how you can make your partner feel more loved, they say, well, I don't want to do those things. So first and foremost, you have to have that mindset of I want to love my partner and focus on how much I'm loving them, not just what they give to me. Of course, in the long term, we have to be aware of how we feel in the relationship, and this is why we communicate about how loved we feel or not loved we're feeling. And he even rec uh, recommends an exercise you can do with your partner where a few times a week you ask each other, how is your love tank on a scale of 1 to 10? So they can let you know how loved they're feeling. And I always talk about the regular conversations that couples must have to really check in with each other to understand where they're at and how things are going before a small problem becomes a big one. So if we check in every week and or a few times a week, we'll very soon know or there won't be a lot of time that'll pass before we're aware of something our partner is dealing with or wants from us. And it can be important for us to then recognize how we can step up to, to do something to make them feel more loved. So we, we should have that desire 
to make our partner feel loved. Again, if we think of things like the art of loving, where Eric Fromm talks about, we think about love as we just find this person, everything works happily ever after, but we don't recognize that actually a big part of love is that we have to develop our capacity to love and our ability to love. And when you're in a relationship every day, you should be focused on how can I make my partner feel that I love them, to make them feel loved and make them feel good. That should be the mindset you have. And every night, you at least should think about how loved did I make my partner feel today, or at least have those types of thoughts. And the five love languages is a great way to recognize that not only do I want to love my partner, but make sure the love I'm showing them is a love that they understand or experience as feeling loved. So if you haven't read the book already, it's a good one to read and you can read it together with your partner or even if you're single, I think it's good to, to recognize it because I think, and he's written books not just for couples as well, but the, the five love languages or this idea of recognizing that people experience love and feel loved in different ways is important to keep in mind with whoever you're interacting with. So hopefully you can read The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. And again, the book for this week is The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. All right, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. back to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tolakwi. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I wanted to make sure I talked a bit about what happened in Las Vegas on Sunday night, which was really tragic with the, the largest or deadliest mass shooting in the United States, which was horrible, leaving 58 dead and, and over 500 injured. And um, it, it was just so painful to see that news heartbreaking and just shocking and still when I think about it it's so hard to really comprehend what happened just essentially someone trying to kill as many people as they can and of course it brings up all these questions of why and we don't really still have a clear idea of the motive um, but it was just horrific horrible and um, as has happened in the past three and a half years I've done this show Unfortunately, there's been several mass shootings or shootings that I've talked about on the show. And as always, I won't mention the name of the gunman. Um, but it makes me even sad that I've had to do this so many times in just a brief period in a few years. But there's been some really bad ones. Um, and this was just horrific, just horrible. And um, of course, my heart goes out to anyone who lost a loved one and who was also there had to experience that traumatic experience. Um, and I know this is not a political show and I don't want to make it one because it's not. And what I want to talk about is to me, not a political issue. I, I think it's very heartbreaking that in the United States, we have become so bipartisan and issues become so polarized that even issues to me that are related to human rights, um, you can't even touch them because they become a political issue and it makes you 
us against them, and you're picking sides. I also feel this way when it comes to things like poverty or homelessness in the United States, where once you start talking about helping the homeless, it means you're part of one side, and then there's another side that has to be against you and attack that, where to me it has nothing to do with politics, but it has to do with human rights. And in this case, uh, I'll give some of my psychological perspective or try to approach it in that way rather than a political issue, but I understand that what I say will be taken as political, but I think there's no way around that. Um, but what I wanted to talk about is in relationship to the weaponry that was used. And in the United States, talking about guns and talking about the Second Amendment is a very hot-button issue that is super polarizing and makes people yell and scream at each other, and usually no one really changed their mind. And it's very possible that what I say won't change anyone's mind, but I do want to share my thoughts nonetheless. Um, I think that we have to be aware that as human beings, we don't always make good decisions. As good of a person as you are, as quote-unquote rational as you think you are, um, in the heat of a mom the moment when you get very angry or sad or get overcome with some kind of emotion, we all can make mistakes. Um, or if we get pushed to some edge, because in this case it wasn't just a heat of the moment, it seems like it was premeditated probably for a long period of time, we can do some really, just for lack of a better word, stupid, stupid and in this case evil things. And I think because of that we have to be aware of the power, the capacity that we give people in what they do. So I'm not going to say we should get rid of all guns, although I think there's an argument to be made about that. And I think that's something we can talk about. But to say that we should do nothing to limit this right, the Second Amendment right, to me is ridiculous. We have a First Amendment right, which includes freedom of speech, but that doesn't mean that all speech is protected or that nothing we do related to speech can be illegal even or get us in trouble. So yes, we have the freedom of speech, but it does have limits. And similarly, just because we have a Second Amendment right, first of all, the amendments can be changed themselves. They are amendments and we can add to them. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that this right is unlimited and that you can, for example, have a gun anywhere, anytime and get it in any way. And it can be in any type of power or, or ability. That does not make sense. So the argument that guns are for protection, that itself can be um, looked at and analyzed as lots of gun violence includes guns that are accidentally fired. So it's not necessarily that having a gun will make you safer, but we'll leave that one um, aside and look at the idea of an assault rifle or that people can have this type of weaponry that really essentially I can't understand as any other way of, of trying to create mass casualties. It's not about protection. If you actually have an automatic rifle and there's a gunman somewhere, you're more likely going to kill a lot of civilians or innocent people, including the gunman, because you're going to fire so many rounds. It's not made for protection in that type of way or to protect your family. Um, you're more likely to cause some kind of harm than, than do good. So it's not about protection. Really, this is about killing people and killing lots of people. And to me, I can't quite understand the idea that there should be no limit to the power that we give to people in this way. Um, I get that a fully automatic rifle is illegal, although he added something called a bump stock device to his gun, which allowed him to fire hundreds of rounds per minute. 
And this actually apparently is a legal device because technically, I, I was hearing someone talk about it last night and I didn't quite understand it, but technically it's not modifying the gun or the bullets in a way that makes it illegal. It's something legal. So what he was doing technically, of course, the killing part is definitely not legal. But what he had was legal. And to me, this is a huge mistake. No one should have that type of power is actually what I think. It doesn't just come to guns in any type of way. No person should be given the power to cause this type of harm or destruct people in that way. And even in the financial realm, I feel the same way. No person should have so much power over other people because of the disparity in the finances that they have. You can call it socialism if you'd like, but to me the idea I'm talking about is that there shouldn't be such a huge disparity. So I'm not talking about everyone have exactly the same. Um, I remember being with my father in Mexico, I think it was last year, and um, we were walking around and we were seeing people that were definitely experiencing extremes of poverty. And I told him this thought that I sometimes have that, you know, one of these people here, there's a, an amount of money that could, let's say, fall out of the pocket of someone like Bill Gates, where he wouldn't even recognize it. Or you could take the money from his bank account and it wouldn't, he wouldn't even flinch or know that it happened. That would change this person's life. And to me, that doesn't make sense for things to be that way, that things, there's such a disparity in power that someone can literally have something fall out of their pocket that could be even almost trash to them, but that would change someone's life 100% or make it totally different. There shouldn't be that degree. And the same to me goes with the power of harming people or what we can carry ourselves. To me, even a gun, um, we can argue might be too much, but let's say we have this Second Amendment right um, that people want to protect, but it doesn't mean it has to go un limited or without any kind of, um, uh, let's yes, limitations essentially. And even this uh, idea that it's too soon to talk about it to me does not make sense because we're talking about it out of respect to the victims, not to dishonor them or to not mourn their loss. We don't want their loss to be in vain. We want to say that this thing that happened, it should never happen again. It was so bad what happened to these people. We don't want it to happen again. Um, and I saw people say something like this, and I would say the same thing. If I died from gun violence, I hope we talk about gun violence that day and how that's not a good thing and we need to do something about it. Or if I died from some other horrific thing, talk about it that day because we need to work on that issue. I wouldn't want my life just to go away. And I think it's not that people don't want to talk about it today. It's that some people don't want to talk about it ever because... Unfortunately, there are uh, people in play or an organization in play, specifically the NRA, which has a lot of the politicians in their pockets, and they've become very influential and powerful to the fact that you can't even talk about putting any kind of restrictions. You can be on the no-fly zone which or no-fly list, meaning that you are potentially a terrorist and you can still buy a gun because anyone who just suggests any type of limitation to this Second Amendment right is considered horrible and bad and that they are trying to take all your guns. Uh, and even the idea of the Second Amendment, I think, has evolved over time because if anyone thinks that because they have guns, the government can't do what they want to them. If the government wanted to kill you, you'd be dead before they even wanted to try. I mean, I don't know what you think your gun is going to do against the, the military of the United States, um, but the idea that you can protect yourself against 
the U.S. military to me is is bordering on delusional to think that you can do that. So most of these ideas for me about guns are, are pretty clear, but I understand that people have different experiences with guns. I know people use it for recreation and for hunting, and I don't think that that should necessarily be taken away, that we should just say that that can never happen, that no one could ever fire a firearm or have a gun. But I do think we have to talk about these things and that it's a dishonor to the victims to not talk about it. Um, what was happening was essentially someone creating a killing field, and it was horrific. And also, I, I don't think that guns is the only issue we have to look at. We have to be aware of other things and see what's going on. I don't like the idea of making it about mental health because anytime it's a white man, we say it's mental health, but anytime it's a person of color or a Muslim, we say it's terrorism or, or something else. And I think that's very unfair. Um, but I think it is something to look at because this person, although they're saying maybe as of yet, I've, they said no men, signs of mental illness or something like that. And we don't know yet what was going on there. Of course, something was not working with him. And it reminds me the the power of empathy because someone who was doing this clearly had no empathy for the people he was killing. He was killing indiscriminately, trying to kill as many people as he could. He had no sense of care for anyone else. At least definitely we can say in that moment or when it came to this action. And from a very young age, we can teach our children about empathy and caring about other people, that you always care about other people, no matter what, that you are very important and special, but so is everyone else. And we instill that idea from them from the day they are born, that we value them, we treasure them, we cherish them, but we also want them to value and cherish other people, that they are not better than other people, that they don't deserve more than other people, that they um, can't treat anyone else with disrespect, just like they shouldn't accept anyone treat them with disrespect. And to me, I know this might seem like unrelated to what happened in the shooting in some way, but I do see it as an issue that we can promote ideas of empathy. And someone like this, whatever was going on, he clearly thought of himself somehow better than other people in some way or didn't care about other people or didn't care what happened to other people and actually wanted to hurt as many as he could. And there's a lot of issues involved beyond just guns. So I understand that and I hope we can continue the conversation about that, not to dishonor or not to mourn the victims, but actually to honor them and value the lives that were unfortunately and tragically lost this Sunday night in Las Vegas. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadir Lakwi. We'll be right back. back let's go to a caller radio hamra you're on the air yes uh, good afternoon dr Farid good afternoon hi uh, i am calling from america okay. and uh, first of all thanks to you and your wonderful father you're both a huge help to persian community oh, thank you very in much in your case american uh, or english speaking so we're thank all you truly grateful and thankful to both of you. 
I really appreciate okay. that. Thank you very much. Yes, let's hear the question. Go ahead. Sure, of course. Um, well, I'm, uh, I have to talk on behalf of my friend, uh, a woman who um, I need to give a little background about. Um, the family uh, came to America right after the revolution from Iran. Mm-hmm. And uh, she um, was educated at Tehran University in science. Uh, she had her bachelor. And then the father um, has a doctor, the husband has a doctor in, in mathematics. And he was in America educated and then went back to Iran. They got married, they had three children. But because of uh, their political thoughts and thinking, uh, they had to kind of escape from Iran. Okay. So uh, with three children uh, that they were ages of 12, or 14, and 16. Um, the one, uh, 14, is a girl, the other two boys. And the girl, uh, and when they came, they had zero money. I mean, all of them, next day, they had to go to work. Hmm. Even the father who had uh, his doctorate, in mathematics, he had to go and wash dishes. Uh, and the kids, uh, they all had to work at fast food and the mother, mm. everyone, because they had no money. Uh, so um, uh, it's a longer story when it comes to that, but somehow um, they had to learn English and then gradually get into a better situation. But it took, of course, a long time. Uh, so um, after that, uh, the father went and w- started teaching at a state university, at the state where they are, and then the mother went to her field gradually, and the kids uh, gradually went, they went to school. They couldn't serve because of the financial situation. But the girl who also was working at fast food, she met this boy at fast food, who is originally from Middle East, okay. but apparently he was born here. So um, uh, they got to a relationship as a young girl, you know, 14, and then she became 16, and, and the boy was 18. So, um, you know, they got involved and uh, thinking that they're in love and all that. So um, in the mind of both of them at that age, there was marriage, but then the father of the no, sorry, the mother of the Middle Eastern boy said no. Um, you know, she's from Iran and she's Muslim and all that. They were apparently Christian. So that's true. They went through a lot, the whole family. And then uh, the boy, thankfully, went to another state, got married with some other people. Okay. But let's so come back. Kind yeah. Of got it. Okay. Yes, she kind of grew, grew up. But um, she went through for many relationships, apparently. Uh, with uh, mostly uh, Middle Eastern, mostly Arab-speaking boys. Um, So finally now she went to school and all that. So now again uh, she has been involved. Now she's almost uh, 29, 30 years old. But she's involved still uh, with this uh, boy from one of the Middle Eastern countries, Arab-speaking still. And... uh, the family has huge problem because the the boy is not at all a good boy has no no education they came also as a they got asylum and um, so it, it is a big trouble and the girl keeps going back and forth with him 
and she uh, she comes home and she says, "Mom, uh, I hate him. He's horrible. This and that." And then uh, he comes and says, "I love you." And then just back and forth is incredible. So the point, the, finally, what happened? Uh, they got to a car. She, her car, and he apparently was drinking and. Uh, um, and one of the relatives, uh, the girl who just came from Iran, was in the back of the car. And, uh, he got to a, he was drunk almost and uh, got to a horrible car accident. Mm. So uh, the girl who was sitting at the passenger side, she almost died. A huge amount of internal mm. and external uh, damages. And she was at the hospital with like five different surgeries, horrible situation, uh, she almost died, and, um, but after 18 days at the hospital and all the surgeries, she finally survived. She, she's not going to die, thank God, but we don't know. So now she's at rehab. Mm-hmm. The problem is that this boy, although the family said to the hospital and to the rehab, you know, he's not allowed to go to anywhere close to our daughter, but he found ways and he kept coming. And she um, she tells her parents, although she almost died because of him, and she has said to her parents that she hates him, but then she keeps going back to him because he comes and he apologizes many times. So right now, my question for you is that how can this girl get help Although she doesn't, she she has this love and hate relationship with him, mm-hmm. but she doesn't know what to do. Uh, and still, at rehab, she tells his mom, uh, her mom, that I uh, I miss him. And, and then uh, you know, and and then somehow he found his way to come to rehab, bring mm-hmm. her food. His mom has made food for her at the rehab. So the family is going to help. They, nobody likes him. He's not someone that you can trust in any way. He lies. He, he acts, apparently he hates America and he hates American. And he has said that many times to the family. Yeah. Of so so uh, right now, um, she, she wanted to call you herself with her mom at rehab. But then she's not still able to talk. Hmm. Right, you know, I I hope she will. I hope she yeah. will once she's yeah. able to. Because you know, even yeah. if it was your own daughter, I would tell you there's only so much you can do. But let alone you know the daughter of your friend, um, it's yeah. a very that's a very sad situation. Of course, yeah. with the car accident. I also was wondering because he was drunk. Was there anything criminal investigation or anything when the accident happened? Excellent question. Apparently, he had lied to the police and said that uh, this girl who was sitting in the back, relative of the other girl, uh, she was driving. And she just got from back from oh, Iran. Wow. She's only 20 years. So he lied to the police. They're investigating. They're, they're sending some uh, people from another state with the bag that got opened to get the DNA from the bag. Uh, that was open, uh, you know, got open at the time of accident to get his DNA to prove that he was the one who was driving. Well, uh, yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath on that because we don't know what's going to happen there. And, of course, they won't be able to prove that he was drunk anymore. Um, right. But, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but anyway, okay, so I was just I was just curious about that. Yeah, because uh, of, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, right, right. Uh, but he, they found out that he was drunk, but he said he wasn't driving. Right, uh, okay. He, oh, I see. Okay, right. so maybe there's something. But nonetheless, that's uh, right. we, we can't hold our breath that the the legal system is going to solve this problem because right. we don't know what's going to happen. You know, it's, again, it's hard for me to tell you this is the way she's going to get help because she, she has to recognize she needs help or that something's not right here. Clearly, her childhood, of course, must have been very uh, challenging. You said they had to escape Iran, so that yes. means they're under tremendous stress even when they were there. We don't have to get into exactly. all of that. But then also, you said when they came here, they, things, they were really struggling to even make ends meet and uh, even coming here the way they did escaping that's stressful and then coming in that situation but so she's been through a lot clearly the way you're describing it she's accepting uh, very um, less than what she deserves in the relationship or, or it's what she assumes she deserves but um, it's good that she can at least express she hates him to her parents by that I mean sometimes in these situations the person will hide everything from their parents that's negative and just talk about the positive because they know their parents are against the relationship. That shows that there's something. Um, you know, what I always tell people is that you're going to get to a better place not by lecturing or telling the person what they have to do, but rather by trying to connect with them at the pain. So when she says, I hate him or there's pain there, the, that's their best entryway to try to say, you know, that's what worries me is that it seems like you're suffering so much in this and i don't know if we can help you and we think it would be good for you to talk to someone about what's going on here because clearly this relationship is not her only issue if she's accepting this someone who literally has put her life in danger but on top of that treats her so poorly and it's a love hate extreme love hate relationship she has some deeper issues than just this man and she needs to get help but you know we can never force someone to get help or uh, make them think they need help. It has to come from themselves. But I would hope that when she's down, I mean, even when she's in rehab, that's so sad. You know, sometimes we get hurt and it's not so clear that we're still hurt from it. But this one, she's still literally physically damaged and is trying to recover from it. Uh, you know, there's lots of time to talk about, you know, I'm so worried about this person. And it seems like, you know, it's almost like an addiction the way she is with him. It's like a drug that keeps hurting someone. Um, exactly. it, we know it's bad for us. We know it's harming us. We know it can almost kill us, but we feel like we can't get away from it. And she really does need help and support because she won't just go away from him on her own. Likely it's possible, but that might not ever happen because she'll keep somehow the way he comes back to her. And, you know, I don't want to get into her father too much cause we don't know, but I would want to know what her father is like, um, emotionally. But there's something where she keeps accepting him playing this game. And when he comes back and apologizes, makes it enough for her to forgive everything he's done. Or again, she thinks that's what she deserves or something about it feels comfortable or right for her. And then she ends up back in the same place. And he likely has a drinking problem, too, if he's dr driving drunk. Um, he could have yes. more than I'm sure he's got a lot going on. So, you know, just recognizing that, you know, she needs help and that. We want to help her help herself to make that decision because the only way it's going to work is from her. And she, I hope she would go see a therapist if she hasn't already. Maybe they even make it part of her uh, recovery right now. I'm sure she could be traumatized from the accident, but something that gets her into therapy to talk about this. Uh, you know, yes. th this is not going to work. This this is really sad. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Farid Hulakui, uh, can she... Um uh, make sessions, she's in a different state than you are, 
But can she make sessions with you on the phone? Unfortunately, I don't your, do I don't office. do phone therapy in my practice. You know, so okay. she would always. I I I really wish I could talk to her right now. I know you said she can't yeah, quite talk too. yet, which is heartbreaking that's right. that that's how bad her injuries are. Um, yes. If she ever can, please have her call me, or um, if you want, you can even call the office and get my office number. If in case I can find someone, I don't know what area you're in. Um, to help She's help her. In Arizona. Arizona. Okay, I don't know if I even know anyone there. Um, okay. But if she, yeah, I, if she ever wants to come on the air, I'd be more than happy to. And even if you want to reach out and and call me at my office, we can maybe talk more because of that, that situation. Sure. Um, yes. Because I don't do phone therapy, but we'll see what we can do to help her. But she needs, you know, she needs help. But even I, uh, to be honest with you, phone therapy I wouldn't recommend for her. She needs to be with someone. Uh-huh. Because phone therapy, it's harder to get into things, and that's why actually I don't do it. In my experience, I think it can be very helpful, and especially when someone can't do it in any other way. But where in Arizona, there's going to be hundreds of therapists there that can help her. So I'd hope she goes to someone that she feels good about, that she can see once a week, and she's going to need a lot of work. There's a lot going on. But even if I were you, maybe you can bring it up in the context of the, the accident too, that it could be good for her to see someone after that if she if she's not open to saying it's because of the relationship only but recognizing uh-huh. she needs some help this is really uh, a sad situation bad. that again yeah. to me it sounds like almost an addictive type thing where she won't get away You're from right. it um mm-hmm. you know he can just come back after really hurting her uh, this and this is like i mean you would think this would be the last straw but somehow you know he mm-hmm. gets him back himself back in and she's accepts it and that's heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And she misses him. And when she says she misses him, we don't have mm-hmm. to dismiss that. You know, even if we're people are in an abusive relationship and they break up, they can still miss the person. It right. it doesn't mean that the breakup was wrong. And that's what I always tell people. Even in less serious situations, sometimes people decide to end a relationship, and they say a month later, I still miss the person. And I think does that mean I made a mistake? And not necessarily. You're, of course, going to miss someone you're in a relationship with. And especially in this case, she has what we're essentially calling like a dependency. So, of course, she's going to be in a lot of pain if she tries to get away from him or does not talk to him or see him. So we have to expect that. And it doesn't mean even to herself that she should think that's because I love him so much or what we have is so good. It just means um, I have a unhealthy radar when it comes to relationships. I've created an unhealthy one. And I've become attached to the worst kind of person. And I want to understand why that is so that I don't do it again. But it doesn't mean this relationship should continue in any way. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes, uh, Dr. Farid. So, uh, okay, I want to make sure that she hears my conversation with you. She sure. And her mom. And her dad. How do I... Uh, because I couldn't record it. Uh, no, that's okay. What what I'll do is, yeah, by the end of tonight, actually, usually either tonight or tomorrow, I'll upload yes. the shows to my SoundCloud page. So if you go to SoundCloud, you can search Dr. Fadid Hulakwi, and this will be uh, the most recent show. It'll be at the top. Or also on iTunes, um, it's a podcast. And so if she's uh-huh. familiar with those things, in case you're not, she can um, probably figure that out. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, so it's a podcast on iTunes or also on SoundCloud. So it's soundcloud.com. And then if you search Dr. Fatty Tolokwi, you'll find my page. And by likely the end of tonight, I'll have uploaded today's show. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Fatty, my last question. Sure. What is your office phone number, please? Sure, it's 323 543 
Thank you so much. You are very so, welcome. Uh, really appreciate it. Sure. I mean, I have so many American friends that when they have problems, I always um, tell them to call Radio Hamro <laughs> on, on Wednesday. Well, I appreciate that. Because I believe that. in you and your dad so very much and in your beautiful heart. Oh, you're so kind. Thank you so Thank much. You. I really appreciate that, and I, I wish the, all the best Thank for your, uh, your friend and her daughter. Thank and uh, Thank I'm sure you. I'll hear from you. Appreciate that. Okay. Yes, I will definitely call. Thank okay. you so much. You're yes. very welcome. Bye Have bye. a good day. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. All right, we've reached our next commercial break. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delacqui. We'll be right back. Back. Let's go to our next caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air? Yes, hi, doctor. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm very sad about Las Vegas, yeah. and I think he was a terrorist, and I think buying 19 guns by one person should make the police to be after him a long time ago, because you don't need 19 guns and, and six automatic. Well, but the I truth is a lot of people have... Deliver. Many guns, but I, I I get your point. But yeah, lots of people have lots of guns. I think there's something like 300 million guns in America, or something like that, or maybe even more. And so, and a lot of people don't have any guns. So lots of people have many. But I I I get your point that. Um, okay, I just wanted to say yeah. I'm sad about that. I, yes, I think and we the all terrorist are. Terrorist activity for uh, sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Okay, uh, I wanted to ask a question: as a, why does it take such a long time for a person to come forward and say the whole story about somebody um, rape you or somebody malice you or some, something like that. Why does it take a long time? Why does I can it take tell a... you my story if you want me to, but I don't you know. You can if you'd like, um, because I think it's... Uh, you well, know... my sister's husband, um, I went to Germany to rescue them from the German woman, and then... For one night, I was there only, and he said, oh, since I came to take her hand, I was in love with you. I didn't know about all of those, and then he took advantage of me, and then I came back home, and I could only tell my mother and sister that he said those things, but I didn't say what he did. Mm -hmm. But when I was 50, I could say it, and I saw this movie that a bunch of women had something happen to them at childhood, and they were about 50, and they said it. So I was wondering, is there a correlation to this? Is there, is there I don't yeah. know. Well, I mean, first of all, I'm very yes, sorry I'm to hear about what happened to you um, and your experience. And unfortunately, the sad news is uh, that you're not alone, that many people have been victims of sexual assaults in different ways and at different ages. Uh, I don't think there's a specific correlation as, you know, you, it has to be 20 years later or it has to be at a certain age. Some people make... A report or talk about it the next day or that night and some people never do and it's a very complicated issue and I, I think it's good that you're bringing it up because sometimes 
because it can take so long or because someone takes so long to report something like this, it makes people question the validity or they say, oh, maybe they're making it up. Or why are they coming out so many years later? I mean, and I'm saying, well, well, what am I gaining out of that? I just make my name bad. And I was, and, and since then, which is a long time, 30 years, I'm hiding from this guy. Mm. I haven't seen him again, and I'm hiding from him. Yeah. But, but the well, problem is, you know, when you tell, and uh, the whole family goes against you. Well, that's I'm a possible, yeah. Well, I'm so <laughs> very know? sorry to hear that. And again, it's very unfortunate that what you're experiencing isn't so rare either lots of times families do react in very negative ways when a family member reports especially if it was another family member they're saying has sexually assaulted them in some way uh and that's another reason amongst many that i'll try to touch on that people don't say anything they're afraid of the reaction of their family members that they well, won't i was thinking it's enough to tell my sister you right that's my is. point is that you might tell them but that the people you know they they can blame the victim very often they'll you know even when they're children they'll say they won't believe you they'll say that uh you're making oh. it up how could such a person do such a thing no way you're making yeah. the person i've even heard stories of you know they get a beating because they said it like i can't believe you made it up and the person get you know it's so horrible um and okay, so i want to tell you two uh, two more things that my uncle's wife said oh it takes two to tango that really hurts you yeah that. that's very hurtful it takes two to tango excuse me so all these things happening in the world, just, Jim, yeah, they that's... all listen to your program, your father's program. They all love him. We have educated family, but look at the reaction. They say, oh, your sister chose her husband over you. Well, thank you very much. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's, yeah, that's very sad that they, again, they blamed you. Blaming the victim is very common, or it's not even just blaming the victim, it's saying nothing happened, which is very invalidating. And so very often when these types of things happen and you hear about rapes being reported, they say either the person asked for it in some way or they actually wanted it and now they're fe feeling remorseful. But they're taking away that, yes, of course, these things happen. People are unfortunately raped and sexually assaulted in in many different ways and we have to take it seriously people would rather stay in denial or keep that you know everything is okay feeling let's not rock the boat and let's just say oh you're just making it up or you actually wanted it or something else and unfortunately it's just making a victim of something feel even worse but i do want to go back to something you know because of the general question you brought up of why people wait yeah, so yeah. long you know again so there's so many factors that are at play and actually i had um psychologist dr rachel partioli on the show i think it was about a year ago maybe more than a year ago to talk about sexual abuse um and the reactions that people you know we talked about a lot of things including the reactions people have which can be there's not just one reaction to something like this some people you know especially if you're a child the age matters a lot but you know there's so much shock and confusion as to what happened was that yeah. something appropriate? Was it not appropriate? What even happened? Was it, you know, good? Was it bad? Was that love? Was that hurting? It's no, very bad that people, you know, and a child doesn't understand and they don't know who to tell or if they can tell anybody and they're trying to process it. They're so confused and they might I even... I wasn't a child. I was yeah, I understand. I'm talking about generals though. So yeah, generals. I, I do want to okay, come okay, back. Okay, um, that's okay. I just want to give a kind of a fuller picture, but we definitely want to come back to your situation. Um, 
But, you know, they don't know what's happening or what happened. They might act it out in different ways, either with peers or later on in their life. Um, you know, there's so many things they can experience. As you experience, unfortunately, even with children, sometimes the family reacts in a negative way, so they're afraid to tell anyone. Also, sometimes the perpetrator says horrible things, like if you tell anyone, um, I'll kill you or I'll kill your parents or I'll do these horrible things. And that's why actually when we talk to our kids about uh, sexual abuse, which you should do at a very young age, already tell them that your body is your body and no one can touch it in a way that you don't like. And if anyone ever touches in a way you don't like, you can always tell us. And if anyone tells us they have a secret and that you can't tell us this secret, you can always let us know. You never have to keep that secret. If someone touches in a way you don't like or does something you don't like, you can always tell us. And that we say that because, unfortunately, that's a kind of a tactic that sexual predators will use sometimes is to say that I will hurt your family or hurt you or hurt someone if you tell this little secret that you and I have about what they're doing so of course that's another reason sometimes people don't tell them but there's also shame and feelings of guilt that people have that makes them they want to deny it they want to hide it from people um, there's the fear of retaliation there's so many things that are going on and the reason why i want to make that clear is that again if someone says something happened to me 20 years ago we shouldn't think that means it's made up or it's fake why are they telling me now um, they're trying to get something out of it it's very very difficult for people to ever express that this has happened to them to disclose this to anyone and well, we have to be re not, understand that when, yeah the thing is I, when i came back from germany i was there for one night only then i went to holland then i went to another country in the europe and then i came back and then um i was first of all after that day for a long time for years and years i was in shock okay i didn't expect that at all but sure. then when I came back, I could not. This is, I'm telling you about the victim's point of view. I could not tell him the whole story. Mm. I just said, this much is enough. If, if, you, if your husband, if my husband tells me the day I came to ask for your hand, I fell in love with your sister, I would divorce that guy. That's a, it's pretty bad. You're right. And you, you're hoping okay, that was enough. He did, yeah. yeah. And I said, he, and he also came immediately back after I came back because he thought, you know, it's going to get more, but he came he, 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 at 6 o'clock, I left at 12 o'clock, and since then I'm hiding from him. So mm -hmm. I'm just saying, you know, and then the whole family took their side. Mm. The whole family, so, well, he has a family, there's uh, children and family, and you, you don't have a house. I don't know what happened. That's well, I mean, not, that's, that's a, the sad thing. <laughs> and, you know, you mentioned the first part of being shocked, and that's a big part of it, people get shocked they freeze even during the act you know when it's happening and sometimes afterwards they're still in shock and don't know what to do or what they can do but um you know what you mentioned again is something that people experience often which is heartbreaking that it seems like they're saying well they already have a family and they're married like we don't want to mess that up and somehow they just would rather keep that rosy picture than face the reality of what was going on and to take you seriously and it's sad that then it made everyone have to go against you because in order to preserve that lie or to, to deny what you were saying they had to make you the enemy um and you know make him the good guy or make him okay and somehow blame you for what you were doing which again is so hard it's another violation and that's what a lot of people experience that are sexually abused is that of course that was a huge violation but then sometimes in this aftermath there's these other violations that take place either of their privacy or they're attacked in different ways or their uh, character is assassinated in various ways 
And it's more violations that they experience, which is horrible, which unfortunately makes people more afraid to disclose or to bring these things forward because of the potential backlash that they can experience. So we can again recognize why it's so difficult for many people to disclose and why some people unfortunately go to the grave never telling anyone. What do I do now? What do I do? I mean, I went to Germany because he was dating a German woman and left my sister and her little girl uh, and send them back to Iran. And I went to resolve that issue. I had no idea he had anything to, with, to do with me. Right. I was in love with that German woman. And then I, I just said a little bit so that, you know, it, it wouldn't hurt anybody. And I thought it's enough. And then one day suddenly I just burst. I called everybody. I told everybody 50 mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. I, so I said, well, you know, ah, that, that's, you know, every... I'm yeah, not, I don't know who's having children, who's having weddings, and all of that. That yeah, that's sad that you had to get that, that that happened. That that was your experience, and I'm I'm very sad that happened to you. And like I said, unfortunately, you're not alone. And when you ask what do we do, uh, you know, there's no one solution. But that's why I do talk about issues like this on my show to talk about how we have to be able to talk about these things. We have to create conversations. And if your child ever comes to you and says someone touched me in a way I didn't like. And a lot of times parents, because they want to say, oh, maybe, you know, she just thought something or he felt something. It's just probably nothing. I say you always have to take it seriously. And by that, I don't mean you call 911 immediately, but at least you have a very clear conversation with your child about what do they mean? What happened? Is there anything they don't know? And you look into it a little bit further. So first, we can't be in denial. To deny something like this means you could be denying your child is under or going through maybe the worst experience possible for someone to go through and you're just going to look the other way. So anytime they say it, you don't just think to yourself, oh, it's nothing or to, you know, doubt it. Or I hear people say, you know, I told my mom, my uncle did this and they say, oh, your uncle loves you. What are you talking about? He was probably just hugging you or something. And we try to just deny it. We don't want to face the truth and the reality, which is this stuff happens and people don't necessarily look like the perpetrators. You know, we think, oh, I know what a a child molester or someone who's going to do sexual assault is going to look like and they don't fit that picture. No, that's not how it works. These things, people don't have, you know, a shirt that says child molester or sexual predator on. Uh, It's people that you think are everyday people, unfortunately, end up doing these things. And so we can't just assume we know what's going on. We should not be blaming victims when they do come forward. We should recognize it's very painful what they went through. Uh, People disclose, like you disclose 20 years later, sometimes it's five years later, sometimes it's 30 years later, and in a variety of ways. And we have to give people that space to express what they went through without judging them, without making them feel bad and at least hear them out and not be so sucked into this idea that we want things to stay as they were and to stay rosy and clean, and we need to talk about it. So that's this one of the things we can question, do. This is my question, doctor. This is sure. my question. I, wanna, I want you to answer as a doctor, Holakwi, and, okay. and I want my friends to listen. My friends are saying, my friends, mm-hmm. two of them, they're saying, you should have died and not even said it. You should have died and not even said it. Would you please tell me, is it good to say it or is it not good to say well, it? Well, the, the thing I want to say, you know, it goes back to, it is a personal judgment. So I can't tell everyone you need to, the thing you need to do tomorrow is if you've ever been sexually assaulted, you go tell someone tomorrow. I do think that disclosing can be a first step in healing. Now, disclosing also yeah. can mean a lot of things. Maybe sometimes you don't tell the family, but you go tell a therapist because that might be the best option. Because, you know, although I'm saying someone might say, I'm going to harm your family if 
you tell anyone, there are genuine cases where someone will do something. So I don't want to tell everyone do one thing. Just like if someone is in a uh, domestically violent relationship, of course, yeah, we yeah. want them to get out of that relationship. But we know that sometimes that could put them or their children or other people in harm's way. So I can't just say this is the yes. one solution. So, um, but for me, for but my yes, situation. Well, but your situation, I also can't tell you you should have or you shouldn't have. But I definitely think what's most important, I hope your friends will respect this, is that it's a personal decision. And definitely, we can't say that you were wrong to talk about it. Um, but I also want to say, again, like everyone has to do it tomorrow. So to me, I would hope your friends respect that this was a personal decision, that they try to understand what was going on for you. If you're saying, you know, you were, you know, it was about to explode out of you, that it was just too much to yeah, carry. You're carrying. Yeah, you. that's what I'm going to ask you. Right. There is, at the point, you want to throw up. Yeah, well, I mean, that was your carry, you know, it was something, inside. right, it you was something, throw it up. yeah, that's, that's what it was, I'm sure that's what it felt like, some incredibly painful thing uh, that you never got to talk about or express, and so uh, I would hope they respect and try to understand what it meant for you, because when yeah. someone opens up to us and shares something like that, we want to understand what they um are experiencing because again everyone's experience is different so even if you meet someone and they tell you i've been through this i would hope that you recognize that you don't tell them oh tell your family tomorrow but you tell them no. I, I appreciate you sharing with me and disclosing with me and that's very difficult and try to understand how they want to deal with it and what's going on for them so it's a personal thing i wouldn't say you had to tell them but i think that if you felt like telling them that was your right and i would hope your friends respect that and, you know, understand how difficult that is for you that you had to deal with this, first of all, what happened to you, then deal with carrying it for 20 years without telling anyone, and then have this experience of sharing it with your family and have their reaction and would give you that compassion for what you've been through and not try to judge you for what you did or tell you you made a mistake or you did it wrong. Because this is a very personal thing. No one can tell you you should have or shouldn't have, and I'm not going to tell you you should have or shouldn't have, but I'm sorry you went through that, and I hope you try to heal that and maybe you won't get to heal it with your family but at least hopefully heal what happened to you on your own thanks a lot Doug. sure i appreciate you calling wish you all the best bye. take care bye-bye bye-bye all right we've reached our next commercial break studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 we'll be right back back let's go to our next caller radio hamra you're on the air hello doctor hello Hi. how yes. are you i'm good how are you i'm doing just fine um i just wanted to share this with everyone who is listening that there is hope out there and it was many years ago i was only 12 years old i am 60 years old now and I have mentioned this to many people, uh, including my family members and my husband. Um, many, many years ago, when I was 12 years old, I just ha I had come back from school, and we had uh, a family member who was the Supreme Court judge. He was the Supreme Court judge who came to pick me up and take me to uh, their house because we were very close relatives, and every weekend I used to go there mm -hmm. and uh, play with his children and um, my uh, my mother was there and she was waiting for me to 
uh, to join her. So the gentleman came to the house, and I was wearing my school uniform and was standing in my room getting my school stuff to go with him. He entered the room, and I was near the window, and he said he entered in a way that I felt that this is not a normal approach. So I said, uh, I said something to him, and he said, well, I just wanted to kiss you. Come here. I said, if you come near me, I'm going to open the window, and I'm going to yell out that you're a judge and you're trying to kiss me. Hmm. He started saying, be quiet, be quiet, because I literally went to the window, opened the window, put my head out. And two of our neighbors who lived there, they were also lawyers, and worked with him, and I knew that. So he backed off, and he said, uh, please be quiet. Uh, I said, I'm not going with you. He said, no, I have to take you home. Uh, your mom and uh, your brother are waiting there, and my family is waiting there. So I called my dad, I think. I can't remember clearly what happened from then on, but I do know that I went home to my mother and his wife and his family. And right away, I went to, to his wife and I said, what happened? And yeah. uh, that was it. And then later on, the matter got discussed, not in front of me, but I know that my uh, his wife, uh, who was uh, a very close relative to me, came to me and said, is that what happened? I said, yes. And... Uh, she then spoke with the, his uh, with him, and we continued our um, relationship. There was no rift, but I was always aware, and he was aware, and he never came near me again. Hmm. And uh, my dad was very proud of me. My mother was very proud of me, and I brought this up uh, many times. Uh, in the family uh, situations so that everyone else is alert and aware of this man's uh, behavior that could occur amongst other girls in the family. Mm. And it was always openly discussed. And another time, another situation like this, an adult man in the family again approached me, and I did the same thing. And this time, his wife was closest to me as a mother, and I mean, it was the sister of my mom, and and I went to my aunt and told her this is what happened, and she discussed the matter with uh, him, and, uh, and this time she discussed it with him in front of me, mm. and he was mortified, and he said she imagined it. Uh, girls at her age uh, have imaginations, especially mm. when they are um, basically becoming a woman. They have this type of imagination. And this is very clear to me. I remember this. My aunt slapped him. And he just walked away from the room. And he later on told me, why did you do that? And that was it. Hmm. Well, and wow. Again, the, the, the relationship continued, and 
uh, and I, you know, even when I got married, um, this was very clear to all of us. This happened, but never again towards me. And I was very, you know, very outspoken. And those incidents caused my personality uh, to be more aware and confident that what I think is right, especially in circumstances that I know a behavior from a man is towards me is not right, I need to speak out. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's what's, you know, and thank you for sharing your your story. And clearly you were very uh, self-assured and assertive from a young age. And I think that's wonderful that you were able to do that in, in those two instances, really protect yourself. They were already, I'm sure, um, very painful experiences, but to prevent them from becoming worse. So I think that is great. And your parents likely contributed to that by, even in their response, it seems like that's part of, it shows me likely what kind of parents they were in that they respected what you said. They responded very assertively. They took it seriously. And that tells me that they probably made you feel that way from a younger age, that when you say something, they'll take it seriously. You can stick up for yourself. You can be there for yourself and we're going to be there for you as well. And you had that comfort and that's wonderful. And I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I also at the same time, as you were talking though, I did have this thought of someone who unfortunately doesn't respond as you did because, and the reason why I want to mention that is because, you know, your, your dad said he was proud of you and I could understand that. And I, I, I think most parents would feel the same way. They'd be so proud and so happy that their child responded in that way. But I don't want someone who doesn't respond in that way to feel bad about themselves because unfortunately not everyone is going to be as assertive or self-assured as you were at that age or even at any age, and they might not respond the same way. And unfortunately, as I mentioned in the previous segment, someone who's been the victim of, of sexual abuse can oftentimes blame themselves or have a lot of guilt or shame that maybe I should have done something. How come I didn't do something? Maybe I did want it or something like that, or I'm guilty. It was my fault that I didn't stop it. And I don't want anyone to carry that burden with them because it is, you know, and we don't even know how we really will respond in a moment. We might think this is how I will respond, but until you're in it, you don't know. But I think it's important what you also said and how your parents, I think, communicated to you. And we want to communicate with our children, as I mentioned before, that you always have the right to say what happens to your body. And this is why even we don't say you have to go kiss everyone at the dinner party or you have to hug me now or I'm going to hug you in a way that you don't like and because I'm your mom or your dad, you're going to accept it. We might not even explicitly say that, but parents sometimes do that. They kiss their kid in a way that hurts the kid and basically think, well, whatever, I'm loving you and I love you and you're my kid. I can do whatever I want to you. But that does give this message of people can do things to your body and sometimes you don't have a say in it or it doesn't matter what you feel or think or even if it feels wrong to you, you don't say anything about it. And so we do want to make our kids feel, and not just, of course, in this regard, but in general, that what you say matters. If you feel something, that's what matters, especially when we're talking about what's happening to you, only what you say matters. If you don't like something, you you do something about it, you say something about it, and it's always your right. And I think it's clear you felt that because you said he walked in and it didn't feel right to you. And even what he said clearly, of course, was completely inappropriate, but you knew and you quickly got to action and say, I'm going to, you know, I know what's going to stop this guy. I'm going to yell something out. And you were able to stop it. And you didn't stop there. You went and told your family immediately. And they responded in a positive way as far as being there for you. And I think 
that's all wonderful. I just wanted to make sure I added that so that anyone listening doesn't necessarily feel bad if they didn't respond in that way, because not everyone will be able to do that, um, you know, have that same response. But I think it's wonderful that that's how you responded. And I hope you continued that feeling of what I feel and what I, you know, think is right or wrong that's happening to me matters, and I'm going to speak my mind. And thank you for adding that, Doctor. If you don't mind, I add this. Of course. Um, that when I was growing up, my parents were very open with me, always. Mm-hmm. And they, ne- and I was uh, I was a girl who had uh, the opportunity to have parents like them. Mm-hmm. And they, open, they were open with me. They always cautioned me when I go out. And um, I remember clearly that my dad used to take me to the bus station at age five and leave me in the bus and tell my uncle that she's my daughter. I know where she's going. I know she's going to come back. Mm. So I guess um, it wasn't uh, me acting um, just because I was courageous. It was. I think it was because I was given the tools um, to behave that way, and the tools that I was given to was through my dad's way of talking to me uh, and uh, telling me that I can take care of myself, and also always told me, my dad and mom, if a stranger comes near you, if you don't feel right, you need to scream Hmm. or yell out. Or doesn't matter if it is your uncle, if it is your aunt, I mean, any, anyone mm-hmm. who comes to touch you. If that is not feeling right, you need to yell yeah. and scream. I'm, and I'm, those were the things that I was very young, I heard. So mm-hmm. um, I think I was given the tools. It wasn't that I was this very extraordinary child. No, the reason I brought this up is to... Um, mentioned that it is very important that parents at very young age, I think, mm-hmm. communicate these possibilities to their children. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and also what you just shared was a very humble expression that, you know, you were saying it wasn't uh, about you, but, and I think it is important to recognize your parents, you know, I think every child has that strength and courage. We just have to make sure we don't squash it or we allow that to come out or for them to express that. Make them feel exactly. that you can express what you want to express, what you feel matters, what you think about matters. And I think that's wonderful your parents do that. And I'm glad you're, you're sharing that on the air because I hope other people are hearing that too. Because we have to make sure our kids don't feel like, oh, you might embarrass us at, in front of family, so don't say something or do something. Your parents said, no, what you, if you don't like something, you can even scream. And I'm sure a lot of parents are like, oh, that would be so embarrassing if my child screamed out of nowhere at a dinner party or in front of family. But I love that your parents told you, if you don't feel good about something, you can always say something. And if it feels really unsafe, you can even scream or yell or do whatever you need to do to get out of that situation. And what they told you is that we're going to trust your radar, that what you feel matters. And that's important because you said that guy walked in the room, you already felt something because your radar was already on. He asked you to do something you thought was completely inappropriate and you jumped to action. Um, And also another thing I think is important in what you described is that, you know, in your case, it was a family member and it was someone who's very respected in the community. 
And none of that matters when we're talking about these things. And I don't want people exactly. to think, people think, oh, it's my, you know, my uncle or it's this person or, oh, but so-and-so is a respected, da-da-da-da-da. That doesn't mean anything. Again, people that unfortunately do these things and these things are more common than we realize, they are people from all walks of life, sometimes very respected people, sometimes people who have power and status and that doesn't mean or even they can be people think oh they're educated that doesn't mean they're not going to do these things this has nothing to do um with that and then also what you mentioned about talking about these things parents think okay i don't want to scare my kid and bring up issues like sexual abuse and of course depending on their age the way you um, share this information is going to be very different and it's not about making your kids scared or afraid of everyone but just aware of things that are happening so it's not that i want now every parent to think I'm going to be suspicious of every male I see is going to try to you know molest my child and I have to protect them. No, but we understand that it can be anyone, that we can't assume someone is completely safe 100% and we want to just be aware of that. But having these conversations with your kids is to protect them, not to scare them or to somehow traumatize them or we're doing something bad. But most people, and especially most Persian families, would not dare talk about these types of things with their kids because they think it's inappropriate, it's wrong. You know, husbands and wife won't talk about sex, let alone bring up something like this with their kids. And we have to break those taboos and talk to our kids. Let them know. If mommy and daddy are the only ones that can change you and see certain parts of your body, these parts of your body are private and they're yours. And even if you don't like something mommy or daddy are doing, you can tell us. Um, no one else can take you. Yes, no one else can take you to the bathroom. That's always going to be up to you. If anyone touches in a way that you don't like, you can, um, you know, you always have a right to say it. And I'm not giving all of it. I actually maybe want to be more comprehensive. I've talked about this issue before, but there's lots of websites and people that have written about the different things you should talk about to your kids from a very young age to help potentially protect them and also make sure you're on the same page with them about the communication regarding these things because we can't always uh you know prevent something from happening or a certain situation from arising but we can try to prepare our children and prepare ourselves to make things less likely to unfortunately go a bad way again if you don't mind uh, i add a, sure. a um, another um Another thing to to demonstrate that my parents were not perfect. Mm -hmm. um, I remember, uh, but at the same time that they were not perfect, they were. I think they were rather healthy and naturally um, allowing things to happen that would give me strength. For example, one time I was 15 years old. I remember. Uh, my dad was home, and he usually was around. In the afternoon, I came back from school, and I was doing my schoolwork, and he asked me to do something. And I, I said, uh, wait a second, let me finish this, I will. And I think he was angry at something, so I was probably not um, you know, quick enough uh, to respond to him, so he threw something at me. And... It just missed me by inches. So I got up and told him, don't you ever do this again. And I told him to bend over. He bent over, and I spanked him. <laughs> and, and he did not say a word. Hmm. He got up and walked away in shame. Uh -huh. I think that taught me that no one can... Um, abuse you sure, or, or disrespect you, yeah. 
No one's it's no suspected. one is allowed to do that. There's no one that's allowed to do, that, to do it. Right. Yeah. And I'm that's the interesting. father I did it and I'm yeah. ashamed of it and I'm not going to punish you for punishing me. Right. Yeah. That. That, well, that's interesting. You know, I I talked about uh parents spanking kids before, but I've never had a segment on, on kids spanking parents, but I'll I'll keep that one in mind. But that's a very interesting <laughs> story that, that you, you have there. But I think it shows yeah, your father, yeah, no one's perfect. He may be you know uh he he re- realized what he was doing was not okay, so he didn't punish you back but i think that's an interesting story and i do have to get we are way over the commercial break but i did want to let you share but i appreciate you sharing your experience it also allowed us to talk about some important issues that i hope parents keep in mind um but yeah thank you for sharing your experience thank with you. us have a great day you too okay, take care bye-bye all right we're going into our last commercial break you're listening to in session with dr fatty delacqui we'll be right back back we just have a few minutes before the end of the show um but i just want to talk about something if i had time today i wanted to talk about it and i guess i do in a um i guess it's a movement you can call it that i've been a part of now three years now in october there's something called the polished man campaign and it asks men to wear and i guess it could be women too now they're saying but wear one finger with nail polish on it this year asking to people to do a blue um and it's to raise awareness about violence towards children now one out of every five is something they've they've used different statistics in the past few years this year they have a statistic that blew my mind and it's really heartbreaking but that a child dies from violence every five minutes so one child dies every five minutes from violence and actually i looked up the statistics because i was like that sounds shocking and they even it, it was something from a unicef report and it was even saying that um the deaths are often not or three quarters of them um are in countries that are not at war so it's not just about war conflicts where children are dying but in other ways this is happening and of course um the biggest perpetrators of violence throughout history and continues to be men and um this relates to something i like to talk about a lot which is how we define masculinity and the ways we promote it that it involves being a certain way being almost emotionless and by emotionless we actually mean not really having sadness but anger is okay not allowed to be vulnerable or to cry and to express things in a certain way but of course when we don't do that and we hold in our feelings our hurts our pains and we're allowed to express them through anger and violence, but not allowed to express them through sadness, well, they come out in really bad ways, negative ways. And so another aspect of this campaign is, of course, as a man wearing nail polish on a finger, on uh, one of your fingernails, it can be a challenge towards traditional concepts of masculinity. And that's another reason why I think I, I like this campaign because that's something that's very important for me, that we recognize the costs of 
the way we define masculinity, the ways that we allow for men or disallow for them to be comfortable expressing certain feelings like sadness, like pain, like vulnerability, insecurity, but we make it okay, sometimes even manly, to express anger or even to become violent. And the costs this has in personal mental health for the men that are dealing with it and their relationships with others, um, in romantic relationships, and the ways that they act as fathers and as members of society. And that's something that we need to be aware of and continue to challenge, that just like we're trying to promote women's rights, which I think is very important, and to allow for women to be more flexible in how they express themselves and in who they are, uh, that should be for men as well. So this should be something universal, that rather than saying, you know, sometimes people think of feminism as saying that women should now be like men, that's not actually what I see or how I think really most people view it. It's really that everyone should be allowed to be who they want to be, including women. And women can express themselves in whatever way. They can still choose to do what's considered quote-unquote traditional uh, feminine or woman role in their life if they like to, or they can do what was considered before a more masculine type role in the ways that they work or other things that they do. But similarly, the same freedom and flexibility should be given to men, that they can be vulnerable, they can express uh, different types of feelings that we thought were not okay and be themselves. And of course, also um, this movement and this campaign is raising awareness that many children are still dying. And the main cause of these issues very often is poverty and the poverty across the world. Uh, when people don't have the resources that they need, when people are struggling to make ends meet, worse things happen in those areas and those neighborhoods and in those families. And so this Polished Man campaign, um, it's not just about wearing the nail polish on your finger. They're also trying to wear, raise awareness, but also raise funds and the money that they raise goes towards organizations that help um, with issues related to childhood violence and uh, children who are victim of of poverty in different uh, arenas. So they they help raise money for the Australian Childhood Foundation, the Hager Australia Foundation, the New York Center for Children, and World Vision Australia. So you can go to polishedman.com to learn more about this movement and campaign and what they're all about. Uh, I will be wearing this nail polish on my finger. I'm wearing it right now, and I'll post a picture probably by today or tomorrow with me having that picture. And I'd love to see your pictures of yourself. If any men join in the movement and in the campaign, please send them to me so I can see. I remember, I think it was last year, I did get one from someone and I really, uh, that was very sweet. So I hope I'll get more of those. And throughout the month of October, when this is going on, I'll bring up this issue of masculinity and how there's something we can call toxic masculinity and the ways that we view men and how they're supposed to be and how they're not supposed to be that hurts us all. And we can hopefully challenge that and change that over time. So I hope you'll join me in the Polished Man campaign throughout this month of October. All right, we're getting to the end of today's show. I wanted to announce the book of the week again. Um, it's The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. Um, and in a way, this is continues my attack on happiness or my war on happiness. Um, I say that really jokingly, but there is some truth to that. But this idea that we focus so much on happiness being the most important thing, 
Um, and of course, it does depend on how we define these things. But this book looks at how meaning is probably what we should be striving for, having a meaningful life rather than trying to have just a quote-unquote happy life. And I really have enjoyed the book so far, so I hope you'll join me in reading this book, The Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. All right, we're at the end of today's show. Thank you to the callers, especially, you know, we had some people share some things related to childhood sexual abuse, and I, I really appreciate that. Those stories go further than anything I can share on my own. So thank you to all the callers today and the listeners and to Rahman here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.